Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. This is True Crime Garage. And this is the Killing Fields Trilogy. Part 2. The 1980s. The 1970s were nothing less than tragic for the Galveston area, as the dead bodies and number of missing girls just kept adding up. There was an arrest and a conviction, and yet the murders continued. But still there was hope. As the 1970s were drawing to a close, the murders and the finding of bodies seemed to be tapering off. Suzanne Bowers was the last of far too many victims of the 70s, and she was last seen in 1977. The murder cases had gone cold, and the killing fields were silent, but they weren't empty. The 1980s were upon us. Time for a fresh start. Time for a new beginning. October 1983. Heidi Fay was 23 years old. She left her parents' house to go see her boyfriend. She didn't have a ride, so she chose to hitchhike, which would prove to be a fatal mistake. Almost a year later, another young lady from League City, Texas would go missing. This time it's 16-year-old Laura Miller. Some eyewitness reports say Laura may have been last spotted at the same convenience store where Heidi was last seen. Next was 19-year-old Shelly Sykes, whose blue Pinto was found abandoned on I-45 in May of 1986. Suzanne Renee Richardson from Galveston was last seen on October 7, 1988. Combine these with the bodies of two Jane Doe's, both found in the killing field, both unclaimed and unidentified. The fields were not silent anymore. Many nights, Laura Miller's father, Tim, would go to the killing fields, sitting alone in the dark, listening to the whispers in the wind, and waiting for his daughter's killer. Some nights he cried, some he yelled and screamed, and once in a while he slept. The victims of the killing fields refused to be quiet, and one by one they were located. These are their stories.
In October of 1983, 25-year-old Heidi Fye, she along with her six-year-old daughter were staying at her parents' house for a while. On the evening of October 7th, Heidi's father and a friend were watching a baseball game. She told her father that she was going to go into town to see her boyfriend. She thought that she could hitch a ride from someone at a nearby convenience store. So she walked down to the store, located on the corner of Hobbs Road and West Main Street. This is quite near I-45. Well, Heidi never made it to see her boyfriend. Later, the boyfriend called the house to talk to Heidi, but learned that she was not there. Instead, he ends up telling her parents that he had not heard from her. So her father went out looking for her, and he started with the convenience store. He spoke to the clerk. Now, to be clear, this is a gas station slash convenience store. So he spoke with the clerk, and she remembered seeing Heidi and told Heidi's father that she had used the payphone outside, and then she had seen Heidi walk away. Six months later, in April of 1984, at a home off of Calder Road, This is a very rural area. We have parents sitting on their front porch watching their toddler play in the front yard. Yeah, as they watch their toddler play, they're going to see their dog come out of the woods, and the dog's going to have something in its mouth. Yeah, at first the parents thought that perhaps the dog had found a ball or something that someone had left behind in the woods. Well, it wasn't until the dog got closer that they realized that this was not a ball. In fact, it was a a skull. The dog had brought it to the front yard and then dropped it near the toddler. The police were called and they searched the area. And about 300 yards from the house, police found the skeleton of Heidi Fye. And the skeleton is going to be found underneath a tree lying on its back. Yes, this is in the area near the colder oil field. They found her clothing and a necklace of hers nearby. The medical examiner could not determine the cause of death. Now, she did have some broken ribs, so it's been often speculated that she most likely was beat to death. Yeah, her remains are going to be found in a location later named the Killing Fields. 30-year-old Ellen Ray Beeson, who was last seen alive July 1984, uh, she was last seen drinking with a guy named Clyde Hendrick at a League City nightclub. Now, Clyde Hendrick was there with her, but there was also another couple. And this couple was not super close with Clyde, but the woman knew Ellen Beeson well. And all of them, all four of them had been part of the same little group that hung out at this nightclub. You know, most nights they would be there after work drinking. Since Beeson and Hendrick were still drinking when the couple had left, uh, eventually she had lost touch with her friend and not seen her friend in some time. So she started to nag Hendrick, Kyle Hendrick, when he would, when she would see him at the nightclub, you know, what happened to, what happened to Beeson? What happened to my friend? Where, what did you guys do that night? She was pressing Clyde Hendrick to tell her if he knew anything. Uh, The woman says that Hendrick denied any knowledge of what could have happened to Ellen Beeson, Uh, but she wasn't convinced. So she figured that if she got him drunk, well, then he might talk. Uh, This turns out, her idea worked Mm -hmm. on a rainy November night. This is four months after Beeson vanished. Hendrick told the woman that he could take her to where Beeson was. So she got in the car with him. Oh, well that doesn't, that seems like a bad idea. Yeah. Well, Hendrick took her down old Galveston highway and pulled over into a stretch of woods, not far from some railroad tracks. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, He then grabbed a flashlight and the woman followed him down to a ravine that served as a dump for discarded furniture, appliances, tires, and old junk. He led her to what news reports have consistently called a couch. Once there, he aimed the light toward a nearly fleshless corpse. At first, the woman couldn't tell if it was really her friend. Hendrick gave the body a little kick, and when he did this, the body shifted a bit. And now the woman could see something she recognized around the neck of the body. This was a necklace, one that she had given to Beeson. Yeah, and at this point, Hedrick is going to tell her a story, and then he's later going to tell this same story to the police. The story goes like this. He says that he and Beeson left the Texas Moon Club that night in July 1984 and headed toward an abandoned sand pit in Dickinson that served as a popular swimming hole. Mm-hmm. Beeson slipped out of her clothes and into the water while Hendrick smoked a joint in his truck. 
Then he noticed that his truck had got stuck on the way out to the swimming hole. So he worked on this truck, getting it out while Beeson continued to swim. After a while, he saw that Beeson's body was floating in the swimming hole. Mm. So he pulled her body from the water. He administered CPR, but she was still unresponsive. So Hedrick carried her to his truck and he headed toward the hospital. But then he panicked and feared that he might be accused of killing her. So he took her to the spot that we just described and placed the couch on top of her. Mm. Hedrick made one thing clear to this woman, though. He stated, you know, I hadn't killed Beeson, but I wouldn't think twice about killing you if you told anyone. Ah, so it's uh, kind of a sign of guilty. Well, this began in eight months of hell for this woman. The woman said that Hedrick stalked her. Uh, he turned up at the same stores when it was clear that he was he wasn't there to shop. Mm-hmm. Um, she would come home and find a piece of paper stuck in the screen door with a big C written on it. Uh, she says this is Clyde Hedrick's calling card. Mm. Uh, and even worse, she said that she, sometimes she would come home and her two little boys. Well, they would then tell her that a man had come by. So whatever Hedrick wanted, she gave him during this time for, you know, she was fearing for her kids lives. Finally, on a night when her boys were visiting family out of town, she decided to tell Hedrick she was done. And she told him, if you want to kill me, go ahead and kill me because I'm not playing your game anymore. Uh, the next day she led police to Beeson's body. Right. And at first Hedrick's story makes some sense, right? Some logical sense. You know, we were swimming. Uh, she drowned. I tried CPR. I was taking her to the hospital. I freaked out mm-hmm. where it gets a little weird for me is once he tells the friend and then he starts basically threatening her. Yeah. Um, and part of me as the friend would be going, why would I be fearful of you? If I believe his story, mm-hmm. why would I be fearful of him? He didn't kill this girl. It was an accident. So chances are he's not going to kill me. Well, of course the police and the prosecutors had trouble buying Hedrick's story about Beeson's death. You know, the skinny dipping related death. Uh, but the Galveston County medical examiner found no evidence of foul play when he examined the body. Uh, so Hedrick was, he was charged, uh, and ultimately convicted of a misdemeanor of abusing a corpse. He was sentenced to a year behind bars. But, uh, the interesting thing here is while Hedrick was incarcerated, investigators with the Galveston County Sheriff's office, the league city police department and the FBI continued to probe the circumstances of Ellen Beeson's death. In September of 1984, we have Tim Miller, his wife, and 16-year-old daughter, Laura Miller. They had recently moved into a home in League City, Texas, in search of a fresh new start for young Laura. Although they were, they were from a town that was not too far away, uh, a new school is what the family was in search of, and they believed that League City, Texas, had just the school and a cozy home for them for this fresh start. Yeah, you see that all, all the time. Laura suffered from seizures uh, for most of her life. This caused some trouble for her at school. She was Mm -hmm. different from the other kids and couldn't hide it because the seizures, although infrequent, seemed to come at inopportune times. Laura was pretty and very likable, so she had no trouble fitting in in that sense. But her parents believed the uncontrollable episodes first started affecting her schoolwork and then later her choice of friends. A lot of the other kids' parents were afraid to have Laura visit their home. They especially did not want her to stay the night, worried that they would not know what to do if she suffered a seizure at their home. And a lot of the kids didn't want to stay at Laura's home as the seizures were just something that that most kids and teenagers didn't understand. And, of course, we tend to be afraid of things that we don't understand. Uh, I'll give you an example of a situation this poor young girl had to go through. When Laura was about 11 or 12, she was in the choir at her school. And everyone knows that the choir always puts on a good presentation some, you know, at Christmas time for the parents and students to celebrate the holiday season. Well, they put on a presentation. We don't know if it's good. Oh, they're all good. Um, <laughs> no, well, they're most of the time not. Laura was selected for a solo. And she had a seizure during her solo. Mm. Uh, She was not in the choir for much longer after that. 
the Miller family was stuck. They were still unpacking at their new home. They weren't quite settled into their new home yet. And this is September 10th. Laura asked her mother for a favor. The Miller's home phone was not yet set up and she was missing some of her old friends and especially her boyfriend and wanted to talk to them and tell them about her new home and school. So Laura asked her mother if she could take her to a nearby payphone so she could make a couple of calls. Laura's mother agreed. They went to the gas station slash convenience store. This is on the corner of Hobbs and Main. Same one. Mm-hmm. Where Laura would use the outdoor payphone to reconnect with some of her old friends. Laura's mother waited in the car. Now, after some time had passed, it was time to leave. Laura's mother had to go to work. Laura begged her mother to let her stay, reminding her that she is 16 years old and the gas station was only about a mile from their home and she could walk home. Laura's mother agreed and after giving her daughter a few more quarters, she waved goodbye and was on her way to work. Later that night, when Laura's father, Tim, got home from work, he was surprised to see his daughter was not at the house. As he waited for her to return, he grew more nervous and decided to hop in his truck and go to a payphone and check in with his wife. Maybe she had, you know, given Laura permission to go somewhere. Right. Um, You can imagine how his nervousness, though, quickly changed to confusion and fear when he phones his wife and learned that she had left Laura alone at the gas station payphone. Tim raced to the actual gas station that they were talking about, and he spoke with the clerk. The clerk had not seen Laura, didn't know where she was. Mm -hmm. Uh, The night came and went, and then the following day, Tim drove to the League City Police Department and filed a missing persons report. When the officer learned that Laura and her family had recently moved, the officer assured Tim that the girl had simply taken off with some friends, and this sort of thing happens all the time, and it would only be a matter of time before she would turn up. Yeah, that's your lazy answer. The next night came and went, and by now Laura's parents knew in their gut that Laura wouldn't have run away or just Mm -hmm. taken off for a while. And they truly feared that she may have suffered a seizure somewhere, or she could have been injured and unable to seek help. You know, their minds raced from thought to thought as they tried to figure out what could have happened to Laura. As the weeks went by, they began to lose any sense of hope. Then Tim Miller heard something that shook him to his core. He learned that just a few months before the Miller family moved to League City, a dog had dug up a human skull Mm -hmm. in an area off a Calder Road in League City, leading the police to the rest of what turned out to be 25-year-old woman uh, who had disappeared in October of 1983. Heidi Fye lived with her parents, as we had said, but this was just about three blocks away from the Miller's new home. Right, three blocks away. They're also going to come to the realization that she used the same payphone at the same convenience store that their, their daughter used. Yes. And so Tim Miller is more than disturbed by the coincidence. Soon after Tim had a feeling that he wasn't really searching for Laura, but searching for her body. Miller, Miller again went to the league city police department. And this time he asked a detective if they'd search for Laura in the field where Heidi Fye's body was found. All that had been reported was that Fi was found in the 3000 block of Calder Road. So Tim didn't have an exact address or exact location of where this body was found. Right. Now the detective's response, a, d- a dismissive eye roll, right. and he gave Tim a theory. The detective said that Heidi Fi worked at a bar. She was a cocktail waitress. Some guy probably took her out after closing time. She wouldn't consent to sex. There was a struggle and the guy killed her and dumped her. Heidi Fye's murder, as far as he was concerned, was an isolated incident. Even though we saw her at the payphone at the convenience store. Mm-hmm. So so he's just making up random stuff. Well, if you're going to be a lazy pile of dog dookie, right? Don't be a cop. Okay. In the days and weeks that followed, Miller hounded the detectives. He urged them to search the field for Laura or at least give him the exact location so he could search the field himself. They told him to let them do their job and not to contact Fi's family. As the months then turned into a year, Tim and his wife, Jan Miller, they were not dealing well with Laura's disappearance. Tim began drinking quite heavily, and then 17 months after Laura went missing, Tim checked himself into a hospital. 
That same day, in February of 1986, kids riding dirt bikes through the fields off of Calder Road smelled something rotten, and they called the police. This turned out to be the skeleton of a woman, uh, possibly 25 years old, who had been shot in the back, uh, possibly from a 22 caliber weapon. There was a bullet hole in her spine. Her body would have been dumped in the field within the previous six weeks. Uh, she was described, as I said, as 25 years old, five foot five to five foot eight inches tall, 140 to 160 pounds. She had reddish brown hair and a distinct gap in her teeth. Uh, she was lying about 200 feet from where Heidi Fye had been found. They could tell that she was too old to be Laura Miller. Uh, police had nothing to identify this woman, and she had she had not been there long enough to be any of the other older missing women cases that we've had. Despite many efforts, she has never been identified and is known today simply as Jane Doe. Then, while the police were searching for more clues in this case, they came upon another body just 20 yards away from Jane Doe. The other body was identified as 16-year-old Laura Miller. No longer was she missing, and turns out her father had been right. Right. The medical examiner was unable to determine how or when Laura was killed. Now, there, there were three victims all found in that same area. All had been killed and then placed there in less than a three-year time span. They were all found lying on their backs and underneath of a tree. Someone had placed them there, lying them out like they had simply gone to sleep forever under a tree. Yeah, but you wonder if that means something. The cases, the causes of death were not considered the same. Heidi had most likely been beat to death. Jane Doe died of a gunshot, mm -hmm. and Laura's cause of death was unknown. All three victims were white with shoulder-length brown hair, brownish hair. Uh, Tim Miller's emotions turned to anger. Uh, when asked about the bodies being found in the field, Tim Miller told the newspapers, Jane Doe was killed and placed there after Laura. Maybe if the police had done their jobs, Jane Doe may not have been killed. And he said that he blames the Jane Doe's death on the police. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, with not every case do I want the parents or, or the loved ones of the victims to go after the cops, but some of these cases just seem so ridiculous. Mm. And, and again, these lazy answers and this lazy uh, police work you know, maybe they are responsible for Jane Doe's death. Well, Tim was not only angry with the police, but he was angry with himself. You know, Laura was his daughter and he believed he was supposed to protect her. He was also filled with guilt because he knew he should not have listened to the police. He should, he believed he should have gone against them and went to the fields and searched mm -hmm. for his daughter or talked to the other, you know, victims, parents. Mm -hmm. Well, if so, he may have found her a long time ago. And who mm -hmm. knows what evidence would have come with that. Right. A couple of months just before Christmas in 1986, Tim, his wife, Jan, and their only other daughter, this is a, uh, her name is Wendy went to the location in the field where Laura's body was found. Mm -hmm. Tim had constructed a large wooden cross. Uh, they brought it to the spot. Um, now where she was found, there is a cross. Uh, the Millers believe that Laura should have two graves, uh, one of them being of their choosing and one in the field where she was found. And the other thing we have to keep in mind here, Captain, is that at this time, the police, they had Laura's remains and they would not release them to the family for about three years. Wow. So, you know, the family needed something. It, and takes, they, you, it takes you three years to do an autopsy and get all the information you need. Well, in the family, they believe that Laura deserved a resting place, mm -hmm. even in the meantime. Um, the family planted a tree at this location and placed some sentimental items around the cross. Uh, but this would not be the last time uh, or the last visit to the fields. Because for Tim Miller, this area became sacred ground. Yeah, this guy becomes, I mean, just he, he almost acts like uh, somebody in a movie. Mm -hmm. what you imagine you would act like if this tragedy ever happened to your family. Well, he was going to try to bury his pain and anger in the same field where Laura's killer had left her. Right. 
Tim thought that the secret to finding his daughter's killer was the area, you know, mm-hmm. the, the location that they are now calling the killing field. Now let's talk about the name here for a second. The name came from a movie that came out around this same time called the killing fields. Uh, but it had nothing to do with the murders down in Texas. This was about finding mass graves in Cambodia. Uh-huh. After the Texas murder land near Calder field received the name, the Texas killing field, the murders gained national attention. Uh, the killings along I-5, the Galveston serial killer, and the killing fields were now big news. It's just a shame that the big news didn't come with big results. We'll get right back to part two of the Killing Fields trilogy right after this quick beer break. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL Learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. 
Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, cheers, mates. Thanks for uh, joining us in the garage. Well, Captain, now we have new detectives looking at these three new murders. And the reason why we have new detectives is just like we said yesterday, you know, eventually our story, the victims in this story will span the course of three counties and we will have many different police and sheriff's departments investigating these murders. Mm -hmm. So the new detectives that are looking for answers in the three killing field murders they were hindered by one of the same problems that plagued most of the investigations into the murders that took place in the 70s. The bodies sat there for quite some time, and evidence was lost. Hairs, fibers, fingerprints, tire, and shoe tracks all washed away. But the victims in the 80s presented another problem in all three cases. Police were certain all three had been killed elsewhere and then brought and dumped in the field. Several investigators pointed out that they didn't have a crime scene to deduce what had occurred or who was to blame for the bodies. They only had bodies to look at, no crime scene. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Tim Miller, the father of Laura Miller. Yeah, he began spending most of his time in the field where Laura's body was found. In the evenings after work, when it was still daylight, he would search the field looking for clues, looking for anything. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he did this on foot, other times on horseback. After dark, Tim would sit in the field or in his truck, drinking beer and smoking cigarettes. Tim believed that Laura's killer would return to the field one night, and if he did, well, Tim would be there, and Tim could get the guy's plate number or confront him or maybe even kill him right. and leave him there in the field. Well, I believe he was out there with with a gun. Yeah, many nights uh, Tim stayed in the oil field, all in the field all night. Uh, sometimes cursing the killer, sometimes cursing God, and at sometimes even cursing Laura. Uh, Tim would cry out to the killer, asking him why doesn't he come out into the field and kill him, mm -hmm. uh, or at least try to. On some occasions, as you said, Tim brought his gun with him. Sometimes this was for protection. Other times might be to kill the man that killed his daughter. On one of these nights, uh, whether it was out of anger or if it was simply an experiment, only Tim might know for sure, but Tim pointed his gun to the sky and he pulled the trigger until it was out of bullets. Well, then he waited and he waited and yet no one came, mm -hmm. not the police, not anyone at all. And, you know, he started to wonder, did anyone hear, did they even hear the shots that he fired that night? Tim doesn't think so. Well, and you wonder how much of this is also just, I mean, he's heavily drinking, mm -hmm. you know, is he, is he, um, uh, make believe in any of this? Is he falling asleep and having any odd dreams about him being out there? What, what was real and what was, uh, what was fictitious? And all this drinking and anger turned into more drinking. And then the addition of drugs and grief, Tim lost his job and his marriage. 
Tim and Jan's marriage started to fall apart when Laura disappeared and it only got worse after they found her body. There was a lot of arguing and at times they blamed each other for what happened. Maybe if they hadn't moved to a new home or maybe if Jan hadn't left Laura at the gas station, maybe mm-hmm. if Tim was more understanding, none of this would have happened. They didn't just blame each other. They blame themselves and all of this would prove to be too much. Right. And like we've talked about before, the success rate of a marriage goes down by tons of percentage once you lose a child. All right. We have to back up here just a little bit, Captain, to Memorial Day weekend, 1986, uh, and introduce 19-year-old Shelly Sykes. Shelly attended the University of Texas. She had a boyfriend and a job. She was a waitress at a very busy and very popular seafood restaurant in Galveston. This is one of those Captain pla- D's. <laughs> no, nothing no. like that. This is one of those places that everyone says you have to try. And if you are just visiting the island for a long weekend to enjoy the beach, well, Long this, John Silvers. This is a place that is a must stop before you go home. I guess this restaurant's been around since like 1911 or something like that. But anyway, Shelly worked at this place. Now, her father and her boyfriend didn't love Shelly working on Galveston. They both kind of thought the place to be a bit of a, a sin city. You know, mm-hmm. everyone travels there for fun in the sun. Uh, there's lots of drinking, lots of parties. And let's not forget, Shelly's father uh, would be old enough to remember all of the horror stories about all of the murdered and missing women and girls from the 70s. So Shelly was there working late Uh, She left work around 11.30 p.m. that night. After clocking out, Shelly went out to the parking lot and hopped in her 1980 blue Ford Pinto. Uh, She lived with her father and stepmother and would typically get home around midnight on these late night shifts and hang out with her father for a bit for some late night TV before turning in. Well, on this night, her father was out of town on a trip with some friends. So Shelly, after work, intended to drive out to her boyfriend's house to watch some movies. Well, after more than enough time had passed for Shelly to arrive, her boyfriend Mark became concerned. Mark called the restaurant and spoke with a co-worker of Shelly's, only to hear what he had expected, that Shelly had left a long time ago. Worried Shelly may have had some car trouble of sorts, Mm -hmm. uh, Mark then drove from his house to the restaurant and back. When he got back to his house, he asked his father to go with him and search for Shelly and the blue Ford Pinto. Once again, they tried to retrace Shelly's route. Isn't that crazy? That's what we used to have to do, 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. you know, before cell phones. You just, you know, you'd have, you'd, you'd have that gap when you went from one place to another place. There'd be, be that gap in time where now it's like you could make a cell phone call. Well, this time what they were going to do, they were going to have uh, Mark's father. He would drive while Mark, he would keep his eyes glued to the sides of the highway looking for her vehicle. Eventually, Mark spotted the car. Mark pointed out the vehicle to his father and they approached the vehicle. Uh, They could see that the dome light was on inside of her car. All of the doors were closed. They hopped out of their vehicle and ran up to the car. Now, the first thing that they noticed is that the driver's side window had been smashed and there was glass on the outside of the car and more lying on the inside. And it makes you start to wonder, you know, did Shelly have car problems, park the car, leave the car, maybe start walking, and somebody came by and uh, tried to break into the car? The two men noticed blood. Uh, This is blood on the glass and blood on the car door. They notified authorities. Shelly's father, who was out of town, Uh, He was notified as well. Police arrived on the scene and Shelly's father, he was racing toward Galveston to try to figure out what had happened to his daughter and her car. Now, Shelly's boyfriend and his father noticed that the responders uh, to the situation, they were concerned that there had been a car accident. The officers took a report Mm -hmm. and they asked Mark if he wanted to get the car off the road and return it to Shelly's home. Now, Mark, he's the boyfriend. His father stepped in. He interrupted the officer, explaining that he was convinced that there had not been a traffic accident at all. He believed that something awful may have happened, and he told them that he would not be taking the car anywhere. He wanted the officer to have the car picked up by one of, you know, somebody with the police department. Right, so they can investigate the car. And secure the car, Mm -hmm. and then search it for evidence. 
um, after some convincing, the officers agreed to do this. Oh, they decided to do their job. Well, now the following day at the police department, Mm -hmm. some people came forward having seen the Blue Pinto involved in some strange and alarming activity the prior night. Uh, First was a couple of drivers from two different cars that had seen the Pinto. Uh, They told officers they had witnessed the Pinto in a brief but dangerous car chase. Shelly's car was being chased by a pickup truck. Mm. After the truck pursued the vehicle and forced it to the side of the road, a man jumped out of the truck and pulled his shirt off. He then wrapped the shirt around his fist and he began pounding and punching the driver's side window until he smashed it. The man then reached through the broken glass and into the car and pulled Shelly through the window and out of the car. Jesus. Shelly fought the man and grabbed at the car window as the man carried her kicking and screaming back to his truck. One of the witnesses said something to the man. Uh, and I don't need to use any of the language that the man used that night. You want me to use it? But, but basically, he told them uh, that what they had witnessed was some kind of domestic dispute. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was none of their business and they should leave. Um, when the witness started to speak to the man again, the man then motioned as though he was going to pull out a gun. So the witnesses left. Uh, a composite drawing was made of this suspect, but neither of the witnesses got a plate number from this guy's truck. Um, so, of course, the police, they're investigating this crime, but they, they don't have a whole lot to go on. Well, they start investigating Shelley's boyfriend, of course, Mark. Um, and he did cooperate, uh, in the investigation. He offered to assist them as much as he could in the investigation. Now, after some time had went by on this case, uh, Shelly's father in a moment of desperation, he picked up the phone and he called John Walsh. Mm-hmm. Now at this time, John Walsh was a bit of, you know, he was an advocate for missing persons. Uh, he had not become a TV personality by this point. Uh, but he called John Walsh and he asked him for advice. You know, I'm looking for my daughter. What can I do? John Walsh told him, do whatever you can to keep this case in the media. If you keep the case in the media, you keep it alive in the newspapers and you keep the police officers out of the coffee shops and you keep them on the streets doing their job. Right. Well, after a while into the investigation, police eventually got another eyewitness This time, the eyewitness backed up the two previous eyewitness statements, but added a bit of a twist. This eyewitness had seen another man inside the pickup truck. Right. That would make sense. After more than eight months, uh, nothing seemed to be happening with the case. They were running out of leads. The family wasn't getting any answers. And then in another moment of desperation, again, Shelley's father picked up the phone. This time he called the FBI. He spoke with a supervising agent um, and he said, you know, have you, let me tell you about my daughter that went missing and nothing seems to be happening with this case. He asked the man, do you have any kids? And the, kid, the guy said, yes. And he said, have you ever been in a shopping mall or been in a grocery store and you turn around and, and your kid has disappeared and that moment of fear and nervousness that just takes over your body? Mm-hmm. And he said, yes, of course. And he says, well, I've been doing this for nine. I've been doing this for eight months for eight months. I've had this feeling I've been looking for my daughter. So the FBI eventually sends out two investigators to help the local officers in their search for Shelly. Uh, and still the investigation kind of drags on with really no new information. As the one-year anniversary approached of Shelley Sykes' disappearance, the family refused to give up hope. Uh, They started pushing local newspapers to carry the story again. They started putting up billboards seeking information, and they put out more flyers. By this time, they had put out like 300,000 flyers Mm -hmm. looking for their daughter. Well, then one month later, something happened. This is on June 22, 1987. A man called 911 begging for help. Uh, The man was staying in a hotel, and he had tried to hang himself, and he had also slit his wrist. Uh, When the police arrived, they found two suicide notes. In one of the notes, the man wrote that he was involved in the kidnapping of Shelly Sykes. The man was 29-year-old John King. King was taken to the hospital, 
And the next day he was interviewed by the police at the hospital. Now King not only implicated himself, but implicated a friend of his as having been involved in the kidnapping as well. And this is Gerald Zwarst. After King was released from the hospital, he was interviewed again, this time at police headquarters and the interview would be videotaped. When asked about the night that the girl had gone missing, King told the investigators that he and Zwarst had been out fishing all day. They were drinking, smoking pot, and PCP. That night... Well, there's your problem. Around midnight, they were driving off of Galveston Island when they spotted a young girl driving in her car. Well, they gestured at her. The men were, were now following her car, pulling up next to her and trying to flirt with Shelly. Eventually, Shelly gave the men the bird and tried to speed away from them. King told the cops that Zwarst was driving and that he just went crazy. He forced the girl off of the road and the busted out her window. Now, King... Sounds like some Wayne Brady stuff. King wasn't able to give really great detailed information, or maybe he was and he was just withholding it, Uh, but he claimed that he was extremely high and drunk that night. And he was in a bit of a drug and alcohol haze through this whole deal. Hayes said that the men took Shelly to King's parents' house and took her uh, back to the woods behind the house. King said that Zwarst then took a shovel and Shelly into the woods. King didn't know how long they were gone, but Shelly didn't come back. Right, so Shelly's remains should be you know, on this guy's property. And the thing here is captain King wasn't really certain how Shelly had died, or at least he couldn't tell investigators how she had died. He said that maybe she was hit with the shovel or maybe she was buried alive. Um, basically what ends up coming, this comes down to is we have two guys picked up for this and ultimately they would just simply blame one another. They both admitted to being together that night. They both admitted to chasing her car and pulling her out of the vehicle. But when it came to the actual events of what happened once she was in the truck or once they got back to King's property, um, they, they differed on their stories of who was to blame and whose idea it was to, to kill the girl. There was a lot of problems with this case because one thing that happened was it seemed like the guys or at least one of the guys was willing to lead the police to the body of Shelly Sykes. The problem captain was that they both lawyered up and once they lawyered up, they were no longer willing to lead them to the body. Police went out there and I mean, they, they searched with everything that they could, anything that you could think of all means. Uh, they never found Shelly Sykes body. What eventually happened was the two men were charged with kidnapping, but they were not charged with murder. And I think, you know, that's a bit of a letdown, but in a way, I think it's a bit of a brilliant move by the prosecutor because at that time in Texas, as far as murder and kidnapping went, they both carried pretty much the same punishment. Right. And here, here's was the prosecutor's thought was this, you know, without a body, and now I have two guys blaming one another uh, who are going to be in separate trials. Mm-hmm. It's going to be hard to get a murder conviction. Now, of course, they do have the death penalty for capital murder down there. But the problem is, you know, if you can't get the death penalty, then you're looking at a life sentence. Well, kidnapping carries the same punishment. Carries the life sentence. Yeah. So he Good. thought, you know, what, let's let's do this. Let's go after kidnapping because he they had a solid surefire win case when it came to kidnapping. Mm -hmm. They had a very weak case when it came to a situation of murder, charged them with kidnapping, got the conviction. And then the thought is this, if the body is ever recovered, if they do find it eventually, then they could potentially go back and seek the death penalty against one or both of these guys. So we got these two clowns. We got Zorst and King, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that they're, responsible for her kidnapping. We both agree they're responsible for her murder as 100%. well. 100%. And so what's weird about the killing fields is that there is this, you know, huge timeline for one. Right. Right. We got 70s, 80s, 90s. And then we also have these cases within the overall case. Mm-hmm. Where we know that these individuals are responsible for this murder, but are they responsible for maybe possibly another one? Right. 
And then is this just a big dumping ground? And so is that, you know, so not all the cases fall under one killer, but how many of them are connected? I mean, there could be six killers. Mm-hmm. Well, in this situation, they're connected by the location where the bodies are found. And like you said, so at this point in our story, we have Zwarst and King who are spending the rest of their lives in prison for kidnapping. And like you said, we know they killed that poor girl. We also have uh, Clyde Hedrick who is serving just that one year sentence for the abuse of a corpse. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, what took place here in the eighties is we had these three bodies that were found in that field near Calder road. And there's no there's, we don't have any guilty party. We don't have anybody in handcuffs for one or any of those murders. And furthermore, we have one victim that's, that's remains unidentified. Right. And we still have some of those victims from the seventies mm-hmm. with no answers, no leads. Well, and a quick follow up before we close out the 1980s, uh, regarding Clyde Hedrick. Remember he got the abuse of a corpse charge, received one year sentence for that. Yeah. He's the one that was claiming he, Went swimming with his girlfriend. He found her face up, took her CPR, and then put her out by the trash. Correct. Now, remember, the medical examiner couldn't find a cause of death. They couldn't find any, um, they didn't see any evidence of foul play when they reviewed the body. So he, he ended up spending one year, like you said earlier. He got one year in the clink. Well, remember, we said that the FBI and the Sheriff's Department, they were going to continue to look in and investigate that situation while he was sitting in prison. So ultimately what they ended up doing was they exhumed the body of Ellen Ray Beeson. And when they looked at it a second time through different eyes, they were able to determine that the cause of death was actually homicide. It wasn't an accidental death. It wasn't uh, a drowning like they had originally thought. They found that she had been struck in the head. There was obvious signs of, of trauma to the, to the skull. Right. You, you figure they would have got that the first time. Well, it would be many years later, captain, that he would ultimately be sentenced to prison. He would receive 20 years in prison for the 1984 beating death of Ellen Ray Beeson. for everything true crime check out truecrimegarage.com be good be kind and don't litter Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 